Hello again and welcome to the program. You're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. And my advice to them was if you're in a hole and it seems to be getting deeper, stop digging. Stop digging. Discipline is not a word or a concept any of us really relish. But spend 10 minutes with a child who has not been disciplined and we are very quick to acknowledge that it's necessary. The Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters to the people of Corinth and amidst the content are words of instruction, encouragement, words of reproach and discipline. Importantly, Paul wrote with a father's heart. Dr Corbett has been exploring the Apostle Paul's epistles to the Corinthians and tonight looks particularly at what discipline Discipline looks like when delivered from the heart of a father. Let's join him now. Welcome again. We are continuing through Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in a moment, we're going to pray and ask God to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive his word. Just want to remind you, Paul finishes up looking at the promise, a promise from the Lord, where it says in the closing part of chapter 6, where God is speaking, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there's the closing promise that Paul concludes chapter 6 with in the hope that the Corinthians would realize they weren't to be like their surrounding culture. The way people lived in Corinth was sexually promiscuous, it was idolatrous, it was pagan, and Paul says, no, not you. You are to live differently because here is the promise from God. If you will choose to follow him and not the ways of the world, you will enjoy his presence. He will live with you, it says here. And so in a moment, we're going to see Paul picks up on that promise from God. And what a promise from God, that if we will choose to follow God's ways, we will live with his presence. So let's pray. Father, I pray that for those who are drawing in now and listening to this, that Father, you would open their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts, that they might hear Heed and apply your word, and may your word thrill their hearts and cause them to lift their gaze beyond the difficulties, the circumstances, and possibly the setbacks of this life toward heaven. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Paul picks up 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where he says this, Since we have these promises beloved. Now, I guess if you're just doing your daily Bible or any, and that happened to be where you start, you might think, oh, okay, I'm not quite sure what he's talking about. And this is where we have to read scripture in context. Of course, when Paul wrote Corinthians, it wasn't written by Paul in chapters. It was read to be read as one continuous letter. And so this would have made sense to them. This 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, since we have these promises, beloved. Now, notice this, there's a consequence to the promises of God. There's a consequence to hearing God's word and then heeding God's word. And here it is. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, how do you achieve this holiness? How do you achieve this completion? It's definitely a journey. And Paul's going to use journeying language in this chapter in particular. 
In his first epistle, Paul had called the Corinthian church to repent. He had told them that they had not done the right thing in allowing the man who was living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother to continue in the church without any accountability at all. And so now Paul is picking up in 2 Corinthians because it seems that they heeded what Paul said. They actually did confront the man. They said that you are no longer to participate in our church service until you repent. And so the leaders and the congregation acted on what Paul said. And many people were, well, hurt. They were hurt by what Paul said, that someone would speak to them so sternly and so strongly. And Paul says that he actually spoke to them like a father, not like a brother, but like a father. And so for this, some people are going to, I think, appreciate that fathers generally are the agents of discipline. They're supposed to be. Just on a side note, we now live in a culture that is essentially and rapidly becoming fatherless. There's many fatherless homes. Sometimes that's through uh, widowhood. Sometimes that's through abandonment or divorce. And this has a tragic consequence, I think, and the data shows this pretty clearly. Sociologists tell us that fatherless homes, those children who are not raised with the influence of their biological father, preferably, really suffer. They, they suffer greatly. And here Paul does not want the Corinthians to suffer. He's spoken very sternly to them. They've responded to him. And like any father who has to discipline his child, there can be tears. There can be sadness. So let's pick up this because Paul is going to talk very tenderly now in this chapter to the Corinthians. He says this in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all your affliction. I am overflowing with joy. And to me, that sounds like a dad. That just sounds like a dad who then comes, perhaps, you can imagine the scene with a father who disciplines their child and the child goes crying to their room after perhaps acknowledging that, yes, they've done the wrong thing. And then a few minutes later, the dad comes in and sits on the bed and says, son, daughter, I didn't discipline you because I don't love you. It's quite the opposite. It's because I care for you. You are always in my heart. I would die for you. I want us to live together in a a relationship that means that we will always love each other. This is how Paul's talking to them. You can imagine the fathers, if I'm the father of four, and if, if we could each learn the lessons of fathering that we're seeing here from Paul, who I don't know if it's ironic, but ironically, Paul wasn't a biological father, but he knew more about fathering than many fathers that I've observed. And I think there's some lessons here, even for us who are biological fathers. So there's there's something here that I think is very tender. He goes on, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, as in your your grief, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve in my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Let's just pause there and consider what we've just read. Again, I think this is a, a an exercise in fathering. Paul has said that the discipline that he inflicted in writing his epistle, and it's the in-between epistle, which we perhaps don't have, although some scholars think that there's a trace of it uh, a little bit further on in this epistle. It was very, very severe. It was very, very stern. We can track the narrative here that Paul has written 1 Corinthians because the Corinthians have asked him some questions about different things such as marriage and gifts of the Spirit and the Lord's table. But then those who brought that epistle to Paul also said, but Paul, there's some things that the, there's some things you need to know have been going on. And this is where Paul listens up and, and they tell him, there's divisions. And Paul, that's not all there is. There's a man sleeping with his stepmother. There's a, there's, there's a whole faction in the church now that is deeply and bitterly opposed to you. And they're stirring up all kinds of trouble. And they're even saying some really weird things about the resurrection of the dead and how it's not going to happen. And, and Paul, there's just some other things you need to know. When it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, this is what's been going on. There's been some disruptive women. And they go on and they, they mention all of these things to Paul. And Paul says, and we've seen this in 1 Corinthians, it is reported. So he now knows that what they've written in their letter is not the whole story. And he's responded to them. When he responds to them, of course, the narrative goes that he did tell them to discipline the man who was committing sexual immorality with his stepmother and to stand together as a church and to guard their fellowship from this kind of acceptance and and don't accept it. Hold this man to account. And in writing that letter, that other faction that was bitterly opposed to Paul became even worse. It became even more bitter. They challenged Paul's leadership. They called him all kinds of names and so on. And so the narrative would go like this. He wrote another letter, very, very strong, very angry to about these, these troublemakers, these false teachers that had crept into the Corinthian church. And this, this is the stern letter. This is the letter that caused grief. And now Paul, in writing what we call 2 Corinthians is kind of referring to that second letter that was written, or the actually it's the third letter. And here Paul is saying, I know I upset you. I know I grieved you. I know that some of you were hurt that I wrote so strongly. But I want you to know that I felt bad in doing it as well. However, the result was that some of you repented. You were so grieved, you came to your senses and you recognized Paul's right. 
we have done the wrong thing. We've sided with these false teachers who have misled us. Paul really is someone who cares for us. Paul's the one, after all, who preached to us in the first place and we turned to Christ. He loves us. He was here 18 months. He was caring for us. What were we thinking, believing these false teachers who tried to trick us into thinking that Paul was this greedy or power-hungry apostle who who knows if he was really an apostle we think he may have just appointed himself an apostle and this was the kind of thing that was going on and when paul wrote to them that that what scholars call the severe letter they repented now here's something i think we need to know about repentance repentance sounds like that really harsh word that the prophets used in the Old Testament, calling Israel to turn back to God, repent. Of course, the the first word of of any sermon in the New Testament begins with the word repent. This was John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the first message of Christ recorded in the Gospels begins with the word repent. Repentance means to stop Stop what you're doing. Someone wrote to me the other day and said, oh, it just seems that the hole I'm in keeps getting deeper. And my advice to them was, if you're in a hole and it seems to be getting deeper, stop digging. Stop digging. In fact, I later said to them, I think you need to get rid of that shovel and get a ladder. If you're in a hole, stop digging. And repentance is kind of like, that in the sense that repentance says where you're going is going to hurt you. It's not good for you. You need to stop. And that's the first step in repentance. Stop. But it's not the last step. The la- the repentance then goes to this meaning of turn around. Do a 180 degree, degree turnaround. Turn. Repentance is when you're going one way, you stop, you turn around and go the other way. And in this sense, repentance involves we were walking with the Lord. We then stopped and we turned around to go away from the Lord. We were doing our own thing. It may not be a 180 degree turn. It may be a one degree turn. But that one degree after a while becomes a long way away from where you're meant to be. And so to repent means to stop and turn back to the Lord. So it's not just a matter of stop. It's not a matter of just stopping something. It's a matter of starting to do something different. And here Paul is saying, when I wrote this letter to you, yes, it upset you. Yes, you were grieved. You, many of you may have even been angry with me. But now you know I actually did that because I love you. I care for you. So where Paul is saying this, we read on the close of verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you agree, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here Paul's going to refer to this concept of godly grief. Let me just point out godly grief, what Paul is probably meaning here. There is a worldly grief, and he uses that language, a worldly grief that brings condemnation. Condemnation that leads people to becoming vulnerable to manipulation. 
being manipulated by someone, being manipulated by culture, being manipulated by people who have ulterior motives, that's condemnation. We use the expression, you're just putting a guilt trip on me. That's worldly grief. Someone just making, wanting you to feel bad about something. But godly grief leads to repentance. And sometimes when you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing, you need someone who really cares, someone who cares enough for you that they're going to challenge you. They're going to challenge you by challenging what you're doing, your attitude, your behavior. And hopefully in most of you who are listening to me now, you have at least parents who do that or you are that parent. And maybe you're an older person and you have develop some really bad habits and some bad attitudes. And at this stage of your life, you need people who really care for you, who care enough for you to say, I'm concerned for you, that this attitude of yours is going to drive people away. I'm concerned for you that the way you're treating people, the way you're talking is going to cause great harm to you and people won't want to hang out with you because you are doing this kind of thing, the way you're behaving or your attitude or the way you're speaking. If you haven't got people in your world who love you that much to do that for you, you are poorer. You are poorer as a result. I wonder if this is why many people who have attitudes that they don't want challenged tend to isolate themselves. It can be really tough being in community. It can. It can and we're reading about it here in this chapter where Paul is saying in this community where God has placed leaders and shepherds, pastors who are called to care, called to hold people to account. At times it it can hurt. Well, I mean after all, who wants someone challenging their behavior? I don't like it. And I'm sure you don't either. But in the end, oftentimes when people criticize us for something that we've done, said, or the attitude we've displayed, we go away and we think about it. And this is my response anyway. I think, actually, I think that might be right. I think my attitude really does need a a bit of a, a reality check here. And so in... In this instance, too, we can see this is exactly what's happened with the Corinthians. Paul has challenged them, and he's just stressed to them, I'm not doing this because I'm on a power trip. I'm not doing this because I want to manipulate you. And one of the things that Paul has just said is, and he alluded to it in in the previous chapter as well, that there's things going on in my life right now, and I'm super impressed with reading Paul at this point, that he doesn't actually explain to the Corinthians all of the hardships that he's now facing. Sometimes we we can have people who care enough about us that they forget about the troubles and challenges that they're going through and they take the time to say something to us. One of my favorite movies, not because it's a fun, happy movie, it's not really that at all, the late Robin Williams and Matt Damon in, I think it was maybe Matt Damon's first movie, Goodwill Hunting, where uh, Matt Damon plays a, a troubled young man 
late teens, early 20s, who who was a genius. He actually was really, really clever, but he grew up um, suffering abuse as a child. And all through his life, he sort of had this attitude that he was going to hurt others before they hurt him. And it got him into all kinds of trouble. If you know the story, he ended up having to do community service and he was having to clean a school and a college campus and and he was able to, uh, after hours, he was able to solve a, a maths problem on a blackboard that the professor had signed the, assigned to these university students. And the result was that uh, some, the professor saw that someone had accurately solved the, uh, the, the equation and w- tried to find out who it was and eventually did find out who it was and found out that he was a deeply troubled young man. If you know the story, he goes to the psychologist for help and the psychologist, played by Robin Williams, has actually got his own issues. But what we see is that uh, the character played by Matt Damon, um, Will Hunting, uh, is trying to trying to uh, outsmart the psychologist, just like he has done to so many other court-assigned psychologists. But he encounters this psychologist, played by Robin Williams, who who actually is, as I said, dealing with his own, he's dealing with his own grief. Recently lost his wife to uh, cancer and it was a protracted uh, uh, demise for her and eventually even though he's got his own issues he takes the character played by Matt Damon and cares for him and if you know the story he cares for him by scolding him by telling him that he's got an attitude that's going to eventually ruin him and he says you you think you're so smart and he was he was smart but you think you're so smart that it's only what you can get out of books that is true knowledge he said let me tell you to love another person is to make yourself vulnerable to them to love another person means that you're transparent with them and you let them know how you're really feeling and you get to understand how they're really feeling and he begins to describe closeness and intimacy and what love is and of course we know from Paul's writings love is sacrificial serving of another for their highest good and the character played by Robin Williams describes this to Matt Damon's character good uh, and the movie's called goodwill hunting will hunting and so eventually he really takes the time to understand Will. And he goes through the police records and he sees the photos of Will as a young boy with cigarette burns and bruises on his back and on his face and on his stomach and legs and arms and realises this kid has a long history of being abused. And he realises he's now doing the only thing he knows how to survive, and that is hurt others before they hurt you so that they won't hurt you. There's a saying among counsellors, and and it goes, uh, hurt people hurt people. And here, Robin Williams calls out uh, Will Hunting and, and says to him, 
you know, what happened to you as a child was not your fault. And there's that tender moment. It's the climax of the movie where Will Hunting says, yeah, yeah, I know. But what Robin Williams does is he takes a step closer to Will Hunting and he says it again. It was not your fault. He then takes another step closer to him. And Matt Damon's character is going, yeah, 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 I know, I know. But he takes another step closer to him and says it again. And Will Hunting looks into Robin Williams' eyes and bursts into tears. The psychologist embraces him and hugs him. This is what a father's supposed to do. Affirm his son. And he does that with Will. And something in Will breaks. He realises this man's not just being a psychologist. This man is caring. He actually loves me in a wholesome way pure way I think our society would be a much better society if people experienced genuine love not what they call love which is simply having your desires satisfied but having people who are actually prepared to go the extra mile and sacrificially and inconveniently lay down their lives for the good of another. Can I point out the highest example of that was Jesus Christ. He displayed a kind of love for us. I remind you that the first word that came out of his mouth when he preached, according to every gospel, the four gospels, was the word, repent, stop. But the way he said it was tender. The way he said it was because he loved. Jesus Christ calls you to repent. He calls you to stop. He calls you to turn toward God and see that God is calling you to be forgiven to come to him, acknowledge your guilt, and repent. So repentance involves stopping, turning, confessing. You don't need a man in a box to confess. You just need an honest moment. A moment where you can acknowledge, I have done wrong, and I want your forgiveness. I have done wrong, I have hurt you because of my wrong. Please forgive me. We read here Paul's description of godly grief. It says in verse 10, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you, but also... What eagerness to clear yourselves. 
what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still the more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Well, again, he sounds like a father. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Now get this closing verse in chapter 7 of Second Corinthians. This is amazing. Paul has described all the, <laughs> all the many problems that the Corinthian church had to deal with, and he closes with this verse. It is amazing. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. <laughs> that, that is amazing. His love for them, having had so many up and down tussles and co- dealing with conflict and dealing with opposition and criticism, Paul could say that. I have complete confidence in you. And it's, it's something I think we all need to know. God is not mad at you. He's mad about you. He loves you so much. And perhaps you have never accepted his forgiveness. Perhaps he, like the psychologist played by Robin Williams, is taking one step towards you right now and saying, it's all right, I forgive you. And then he takes another step closer towards you while you're in that corner of the room. And he says, I love you. I forgive you. And then he takes another step closer as you're in that corner. You can't back out. You look into his eyes and you see eyes of love and acceptance. He loves you so much. He now wants you to repent. And Paul has said in that that verse there that godly Grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. If you want to be saved, if you want to know your sins forgiven, you're not a million miles away from God. You're just one prayer away. Right now, you can accept the forgiveness that God offers. A prayer that says, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. I pray. And in Christian tradition, the word amen means Please let it be. So I say, Amen. And may God bless you who've joined with me now in this journey through Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. And I trust that you will know the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Tender Discipline of a Father from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, you can tell if someone really loves and cares for you because they're prepared to hold you to account. 
It's not always comfortable, but it's very much what God does for us from his loving Father's heart. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. 